Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, They Say There's Another King, One Called Jesus. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November 24, 2013. It's the celebration of Christ the King. For Roman Catholics and churches that follow the Revised Common Lectionary, this last Sunday of the liturgical year honors Christ the King. It's a relative newcomer to the Christian calendar. Pope Pius XI introduced the feast on December 11, 1925, with his encyclical called Qua Primus, in Latin, in the first. That papal letter summarizes the Bible's teachings about the kingship of Christ. According to Pius, Christ the King rules not only over the church, but also over all the whole world. If not now, then at the end of time. But doesn't this feel like a setup for liturgical failure? For the worst sort of triumphalism? If so, blame the Apostle Paul, not the Pope Pius. Today the language of kingship is unfashionable and offensive. There are good reasons for this. We don't live under kings, so the metaphor feels irrelevant. And we're rightly repulsed at how the reigns of kings meant a reign of terror for most subjects. Massive wealth and power attained by cruelty and exploitation, which was then passed on by birthright to people who did nothing to deserve it. Nonetheless, the language of kingship is embedded in the Christian story. The earliest followers of Jesus and especially his detractors, used the language of kingship to describe who he was, what he said, and what he did. Unless you want to follow Thomas Jefferson and snip and clip the parts of the Bible that you don't like, thus creating a Bible in your own image, we're left with the language of kinship. And as in the game of golf, we're better off to play the scriptures where they lie. The question then becomes, what kingship means? In the epistle for last week, Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. His ministry there started in the local synagogue and then expanded to include what Luke describes in Acts 17 as, quote, a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. Then came the detractors. Their accusations have the suspicious sound of historical reliability. A mob complained to city officials that the believers in Thessalonica, quote, defied Caesar's crees, saying there is another king, one called Jesus. And so Thessalonica erupted in riots. Civic-minded Romans accused the early believers of sedition because of the overt political implications of their confession of another king, a kingdom of God, and a citizenship in heaven. 
If Jesus is Lord and King, then allegiance to him is absolute and unconditional. Political heresy then follows. Caesar, Herod, Pharaoh, Pilate, and Mammon, all these and more are not lords. At best, our allegiance to them is relative and conditional. At worst, they are posers to be deposed. And then in the Gospel for this week from Luke 23, Jesus is dragged to the Roman governor's palace for three reasons, all political. We read in Luke 23, We found this fellow subverting the nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Which is to say that Jesus died as a politically subversive criminal, and his followers were seen as subversive citizens. Pilate met the angry mob outside the praetorium and then grilled Jesus alone back inside. Are you the king of the Jews? My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus replied. My kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, mocked Pilate. Yes, you are right in saying that I am a king. Pilate went back outside, declared that Jesus was innocent, then had his soldiers beat, flog, and humiliate him with purple robes and a crown of thorns. Hail, O king of the Jews, they mocked. Back outside, the mob hounded Pilate. If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Pilate thus found himself sandwiched between angering the mob and betraying his emperor. He caved in. Here is your king. Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. Pilate insulted the Jews one last time by fastening a notice to the cross, written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, that he knew would offend them. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. They objected, of course. They said, don't write the King of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. But it was too late. What I have written, I have written, said Pilate. And with his mockery of the Jews, Pilate wrote much more than he ever could have known or imagined. In fact, later believers would worship Jesus not only as king of the Jews, but as also king of kings the king of the ages, and ruler of the kings of the earth. But even all that doesn't plumb the depths of the full Christian confession. If the language of kingship in the gospel offends us, the epistle to the Colossians for this week makes your head explode. It's impossible to reconstruct 2,000 years after the fact 
but it seemed like the church at Colossae faced a syncretistic mishmash of spiritual teachings. Paul mentions philosophic speculations, ascetic practices about food and drink, and religious rituals based upon the lunar calendar or the Jewish Sabbath. But all these, says Paul, are a mere shadow compared to the reality that we experience in Christ. Jesus wasn't just the son of a carpenter, says Paul, an itinerant rabbi, or a rogue king who angered Rome. He's not even merely the head of the church. Yes, he's all these, but he's far more. The Colossian Confession makes the language of kingship look pale and puny by comparison. For Paul, Jesus is the Lord of all creation and cosmos, whether things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. The other readings this week fill out this picture of Christ the King and Lord of the cosmos. He's the one who gathers rather than scatters, Jeremiah 23. Instead of waging war, Psalm 46.9 says he makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. And in Luke 23.43, Jesus the King welcomes the criminals. In the mission and message of Jesus, says Paul, God will reconcile himself to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Peace and reconciliation for all of creation, not domination and exploitation, are thus signs of the kingdom of God in Jesus. So don't blame pious. Rather, thank Paul, who wrote to the Colossians, This is the gospel that you heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. For books this week, I review a title by Karima Benun. It's called, Your Fatwa Does Not Belong Here, Untold Stories from the Fight Against Muslim Fundamentalism. New York, W.W. W. Norton, 2013. It's 402 pages. The violence that has beset much of the Middle East has put Westerners in an awkward position. How do you condemn suicide bombings and public beheadings without incurring the charge of being anti-Islam? Karima Benoun is an Algerian professor of international law at the University of California Davis School of Law. She describes herself as a secular person and confirmed agnostic who argues for an unabashed challenge of fundamentalism. She opposes those on the right who feed anti-Muslim agendas, 
but she's just as hard on liberal multiculturalists who make concessions in the name of tolerating religious differences. We often hear the question, why don't Muslims speak out against the violence perpetrated by their religion? After all, the overwhelming majority of victims of Muslim violence are themselves Muslim. Benoon's oral history shows that many Muslims do speak out. She collects the stories of Muslims who are repudiating violence, almost always a great risk to their personal safety. Her book is based upon interviews with 286 Muslims from 26 countries. There's a liberal mullah in Harat, schoolgirls performing in an arts festival in Lahore, artists and journalists of all sorts, a cultural cafe in Karachi, school teachers in the West Bank, a cleric resisting the recruitment efforts of al-Shabaab among Somali refugees in Minneapolis. Finding a principled position in this political universe is not easy, Benoon admits. Some people work within Islam to reinvigorate its history as a life-affirming and even liberal-minded religion. Others find this approach hopeless and appeal to universal human rights that transcend all religions. Some are hopeful, others are pessimistic, and still others leave, exacerbating the problem of brain drain. They often find themselves between secular autocracy and dictator thugs like Mubarak and religious extremists and theocracy like the Taliban. Horrible socioeconomic conditions, weak or failing states, and the foreign policies of Western countries fuel these fires. But Benoon's book hopes for the best. It's a powerful, bearing witness to the atrocities of fundamentalism, to truth and memory, and to the stories of the victims. Once again, the author is Karima Benoon. The title, Your Fatwa Does Not Belong Here, 2013. For movies this week, I review The Great Gatsby from 2013. A young writer named Nick Carraway narrates this film version of F. Scott Fitzgerald's novel about his mysterious neighbor about whom so much is written but so little is really known. One J. Gatsby, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Just who is he? It's the Roaring Twenties, a heady time for the excesses of the wealthy elite. Gatsby has a well-deserved reputation for parties of opulent hedonism. But there's one thing Gatsby wants and cannot have. A former love named Daisy, Carraway's cousin, who was badly married to the philanderer Tom Buchanan. As a Midwesterner who's new to New York, Nick understands that he's inside this world of mega-money, but forever an outsider, which allows him to describe with detachment the deceits, jealousies, illusions, and tragedies 
of the Gatsby crown. Despite the attention given to the details of the period, the soundtrack by Jay-Z projects the story into our own day. I watched this film on Comcast streaming. The Great Gatsby from the year 2013. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Shamus Haney, who recently died towards the end of 2013. Haney won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1995. Born in Northern Ireland, he was the oldest of nine children. Until his teenage years, he lived on his small family farm. Later, he lived in Belfast and then taught at Berkeley, Harvard, and Oxford. This extremely short but powerful poem is called Voices from Lemnos. History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up in hope and history rhyme. Voices from Lemnos by Shamus Haney. Thank you so much for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 24th, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.